0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We have a two part show today. Both get at hard problems in how to deal with technology companies, first, around the regulation of algorithmic amplification on social media, and second, around competition. On algorithms, we'll hear from Daphne Keller, who directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center, and on competition, we'll have a tour of five new bills put forward in Congress with Dr. Hal Singer, a PhD economist and managing director of the firm Econ One. A couple of weeks ago, Daphne Keller, who in addition to her role in the Cyber Policy Center, is also a lecturer at Stanford Law School, published an essay, Amplification and Its Discontents, Why Regulating the Reach of Online Content is Hard, on the website of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia. In the essay, she lays out why regulating amplification to restrict distribution of harmful or illegal content is hard, drawing in part on her experiences with both manual and algorithmic management of content at Google, where until 2015, she was Associate General Counsel with primary responsibility for the company's search products. Here's Daphne.
2: I'm Daphne Keller. I direct the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center.
1: Um, so you have this paper uh, published by the Knight First Amendment Institute in Columbia, uh, amplification and its discontents. Um, so why regulating the reach of online content is hard. What did you set out to do with this essay?
2: As with a lot of what I write, I set out to respond to something that I was hearing a lot that seemed problematic. Some variant on the idea that, of course, platforms aren't responsible for what their users say, but they should be responsible for what they amplify or give additional reach through their algorithms, uh, which sounds pretty straightforward. But I, you know, for people who are used to looking at the mechanics of how we regulate online speech and and how platforms uh, do content moderation actually is super, super complicated and it's hard to figure out what that would actually mean in practice and you know what kind of rule you could set that would achieve you know legitimate goals about restricting you know harm from illegal online speech, Uh, without running into a whole lot of practical problems or a whole lot of problems with the First Amendment.
1: You do put certain issues around amplification out of the scope of this essay. Um, So so what are those and and why are they out of scope in your mind?
2: Part of the backdrop here is that when we talk about regulating platforms, at this point, we're kind of talking about regulating almost everything about human life and how we interact with each other. You know, every problem maybe not literally every, but, you know, so many problems about discrimination, for example, or about competition um, that we already encounter in the real world and have, you know, masses of laws and scholarship and, you know, newspaper op-eds about those have all migrated online. And now we look at all of them through the lens of regulating platforms. And so I think it's just Impossible to say something in any level of detail that tackles all of those problems at once. And this is why I had to carve out a couple of things. So, one of the big things that I carved out um, is the question of when ranking or amplification is discriminatory, meaning the problem isn't that a user posted something discriminatory. The problem is, for example, that um, Facebook took a perfectly normal ad for housing and Targeted it so that white people were more likely to see it than black people. You know, so that the the problem was introduced through an action of, of of the the ranking. That's a huge and fascinating and you know very important issue, but but it's not something I, I tried to target here. Another is the issue of platforms potentially self-preferencing in their ranking. So, for example, the European Commission uh, has charged Google with. Um, self-preferencing its own shopping results, demoting competitors' shopping results, and that also is a super important issue, but but out of scope here because it's not about the harms caused by online speech. Um, and then finally, anything that's about purely about privacy and data protection, and you know what information about us should platforms collect and how should they use it, is out of scope unless that can be a mechanism to get at the regulation of harmful or illegal content, which ultimately I concluded actually can be. Like, I think there's a very interesting way forward by giving users more control over their data and how it's used to dial down the impact of the ranking and amplification choices that platforms make right now.
1: Instead, you focus on three models for, for regu- regulating amplification. Um, so you look around the world and you see different governments kind of taking uh, three specific or, or three broad categories, I suppose, of, of, uh, of approach to this. Um, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the first one, which is you know, the legal speech model? So you've got a lot of discussion, obviously, on, on uh, everyone's favorite topic, the Commun- Communications Decency Act, uh, Section 230. Tell me a little bit about, about this model.
2: This is legally the simplest model because it doesn't require us to reopen the question of what speech the law should prohibit. Assuming we already know what speech the law should prohibit, the question is, well, should we make special rules so that um, platforms have more liability when they amplify that speech. You know, when they amplify, you know, incitement to violence that is so extreme that it actually could be legally prohibited, consistent with um, the Supreme Court's First Amendment precedent on that, or when they amplify deception that is so extreme that it could be prohi- prohibited as fraud. You know, th- things that are in these pretty narrow legal categories, and I should say a lot of. Americans want to restrict amplification of a whole bunch of other stuff, stuff that the law can't reach right now or couldn't reach unless the Supreme Court reconsidered some questions. So if we're talking about the illegal speech model, we're actually not going to do anything about things like uh, lots of hate speech and, and racist speech, which is terrible and harmful, but is protected by the First Amendment. So under the illegal speech model, you would say something like, hey, if platforms actively recommend content that violates the material support of terrorism laws, for example, then they can be penalized for that, even though they might not be penalized for simply hosting that same content. And that's the approach, for example, taken in the Dangerous Algorithms Act, which was introduced by Senators Eschew and Malinowski last year and also this year. It's also what was at issue in a case called Force v. Facebook, um, which a lot of people think should have come out finding liability for Facebook for recommending groups that included uh, violent extremist organizations. So the starting point for most intermediary liability laws is we all wish that there were a way for platforms to accurately identify what's illegal and take it down. And a lot of laws around the world uh, have a premise like that. They say things like, if platforms know that user speech is violating the law, then they have to take it down. And there are a lot of known uh, unintended consequences of laws like that because platforms are very bad at identifying what's illegal, and they have a documented tendency to just err on the side of taking down a bunch of other stuff, too, which burdens lawful speech, obviously, but also there's increasing reason for concern that it has disparate impact, that some people are silenced more than others when platforms are sloppy about what to take down. That's a known issue with any kind of platform liability law, and it reoccurs in the exact same way if under an illegal speech model for regulating amplification. Uh, If you say, stop amplifying illegal stuff, then that same pattern of errors and over removal will be applied to the recommendations feed instead of being applied to the underlying hosting function. And I think some people would say, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I'll take that trade-off. Let's get out, you know, we can take too much out of the recommendations feed in exchange for not amplifying seriously dangerous and illegal stuff. But that trade-off is one that is very hard to make under U.S. First Amendment precedent uh, because we have all this precedent saying if Congress makes a law that just burdens speech, that just makes it harder to distribute but doesn't uh, prohibit it altogether, that gets the exact same stringent scrutiny under the First Amendment as if Congress just outlawed it outright or you know, told platforms to delete the content. So there, there's this problem that we need to solve for an amplification law, that's the exact same thing we have to solve for any any law about what content platforms carry. And we're not very close to a good resolution right now.
1: So the second harmful uh, uh, area, or a second area, I suppose, is, is harmful speech models. Uh, so this is about amplifying currently lawful but harmful speech. So w- what is that? And it strikes me this might be the thing that, I don't know, when people think about their qualms with social media that most most folks are really talking about.
2: So there's a a sort of an implicit premise to a lot of the calls to regulate the reach of online speech or regulate amplification, which is there's some kinds of content that are not very harmful sitting in a book or an email or on a website or on a single social media post, but they become harmful if they are very, very widely distributed to lots of people and become ubiquitous you know a not very consequential lie about a political candidate for example becomes much more important and harmful if if it is widely distributed and if you believe that which i do you know that it makes sense it's a pretty easy step from there to say okay well some stuff that's not illegal now should become illegal when it's distributed that widely we should define this new class of currently legal speech that has to nonetheless be taken out of recommendations or not promoted in the ranking of a news feed on Twitter or Facebook. You know, Once you get there, you're saying something pretty dramatic. You're saying that the law should define a bunch of currently lawful speech as now actually restricted um, in this extremely important forum you know, Europe is somewhat explicitly having that conversation. Here we aren't because it's just extremely hard to imagine our legislature or courts moving in that direction. But I, I think it's important to acknowledge that that is basically what a lot of people are calling for and then to examine what that would look like. and And a big part of what it would look like is Okay, so you've defined a new category of previously legal speech that's going to be restricted. Who is going to adjudicate all that? Are we going to staff up, for example, the Federal Communications Commission to hear a million appeals about the judgment calls Facebook made or Twitter made um, or YouTube made? in enforcing this new rule against you know newly restricted kinds of speech uh, what does due process look like for that how do we all arrive at a new understanding of what this restricted speech is and even if we think it's okay for the fcc to restrict certain kinds of otherwise lawful speech on broadcast which they do does that same reasoning lead us to believe that an administrative agency could restrict Everything we say and do and communicate with our friends on social media, you know, that, that is a very big leap. And if that's what we are talking about, we should be very frank about it and, um, and <laughs> acknowledge what a big deal it is.
1: Are there thresholds perhaps where, where, where some of these concerns like should kick in? Or is there any thinking right now around you know, setting some, some meaningful threshold where we could define harm?
2: I don't think there is in the US. And I, I think that's because so often the conversation about harm is held in this very unlawyerly way, which is appropriate. <laughs> you know, there are many aspects of harm that aren't about the law. But you know, and until we get very clear about whether we're talking about regulating currently legal speech and what speech that is, I don't think we can arrive at talking about thresholds. But by contrast, you know, I think the biggest Example we have already of a law that really does restrict amplification of otherwise lawful speech is the right to be forgotten in Europe. You know, so this is a legal framework that says there are some things that are legal to publish in a newspaper or legal to put in an online news article or a news archive, but illegal to show in search results when people go searching for a person by name you know so so there there has been this need to define well what is this new margin of otherwise lawful speech like an article about a DUI that somebody had 10 years ago for example they've had to figure out <laughs> which speech was legal to put in the newspaper but not legal to have in web search results and that's been a long and painful process and It only happened because Google, where, by the way, I used to work and I was involved in the right to be forgotten, Google litigated a whole bunch of cases and led to there actually being public case law. Um, But unless you have somebody who's going to fund and litigate and create this kind of more publicly accountable uh, set of definitions about what the new speech prohibition means, uh, it's hard to see how you arrive at something that satisfies the rule of law or has clear rules or has due process for speakers and so forth.
1: Finally, you arrive at this uh, third area, so what you call content neutral models that increase platform liability for amplifying uh, any speech. What, What are content neutral models?
2: In First Amendment law, the first thing courts typically do is look and say, is this law something that targets particular speech because of what the person was saying or not? And if you're a lawmaker, and you want your law not to be struck down, (laughs) you want the answer to be not. It is not targeting particular speech. It is content neutral, which is the legal buzzword meaning you get looser scrutiny by the courts and you're likelier to have the law be upheld. And so the examples I'm most interested in of potential content neutral laws that would get at amplification issues are laws grounded in either privacy or competition. So as laws, for example, that give users privacy-based rights to decide what data about them will be used to target content to them. If you had a right based on privacy to say I want to see less violence, or I want to see more history podcasts, or I want to see more cat videos, and you know, have dials and knobs and sliders that are about how your information gets used. Um, that would be a very interesting way to get at the the issue of amplification. It would, you know, almost by definition, decrease the power of any given platform to determine what the general population sees because we would all be opting for different channels and and you know kind of different discursive ecosystems to live in.
1: Can we pause on this one for just a minute because there are you know folks out there who are kind of weighing in on this idea that you might not expect to weigh in on tech policy questions. I'm thinking of like Francis Fukuyama. You know, Why do you think this idea in particular has caught on with with that lot?
2: I think because it solves for a number of problems at once it is a way in francis fukuyama's version of it um who's my my colleague at stanford it is in part a way to get at competition problems you know to to arrive at a remedy other than breaking up platforms or undoing acquisitions that would create more competition at the content moderation layer, to have a, a way for um, a third party to come in and moderate your Facebook feed in, in a way that you want. So you could select, you know, the ESPN version of your Twitter feed or the Disney version of your Facebook feed or a Black Lives Matter affiliated groups, um, moderation rules for YouTube, uh, etc. So it, it, simultaneously introduces more competition into the space and addresses a speech and information access issue by letting people have more control over over what they see. Um, the, The downside of it, of course, is that if the problem you're worried about is filter bubbles or echo chambers or people opting in to see the like all hate speech all the time channel or all COVID disinformation all the time, it does not solve for that problem. But it does give you a way, for example, for women journalists who are being harassed on Twitter to go into a lens on Twitter where that is policed for more aggressively or for people who really want to see more news about the Palestinian perspective um, on the conflict with Israel to get that prioritized more or taken down less um, within their, their Facebook feed.
1: The way that you portray the, the kind of trade-offs is, you know, why this is such an interesting idea. I don't know. I, in my mind, I, I kind of struggle sometimes with, with the fact that it, is, it does seem like such a silver bullet, you know, that people are kind of putting a lot of faith in the notion that, that it may um, produce a, a kind of better outcome for society on some level. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if it
2: well, works out or not. I mean, it might be testable. Twitter has something called Project Blue Sky that is about creating distributed and competing content moderation approaches layered on top of the Twitter platform. So they they are actively trying to build this. Uh, Stephen Wolfram, technologist, testified to Congress that he thought this was possible a couple of years ago. You know, we, we, we shouldn't give up yet. And the, the reason I'm most interested in it is because it is an approach that does not dead end at the Constitution. <laughs> there are so many ideas here that just don't work for, for First Amendment reasons. And this one doesn't run into that set of barriers. I, I actually have, I gave a talk on this at a, a Knight Institute event with Corey Doctorow a couple of weeks ago, outlining what I think are the biggest hurdles for this approach. And I have a, a short piece coming out um, soon in the Journal of Democracy. Making these same points. Basically, the, the big hurdles as I see them are, are four. First, there's does this technology actually work? <laughs> like when, when I write about this, I call it magic APIs because I'm not sure if the um, just the technological infrastructure to say run a different kind of query ac- across Google's whole search corpus, like does that actually work? So that's one barrier. The second barrier is. Who makes money and how? Like, how do we rejigger the ad serving infrastructure and the division of money flowing from that? Or how do we find some other way for people to make money to make this work? Um, the third issue which i think is perhaps the thorniest is about privacy how do we make this work without creating a situation that's a whole lot like Cambridge analytica where basically I as a Facebook user have to expose all my friends data in order to opt into a new competing uh, you know vendor of ranking and content moderation services and then the the fourth issue is about the cost of content moderation I think having all of these competing providers, replicate the exact same work translating a Brazilian pop song, for example, to figure out if it's too dirty for some or too pornographic for some users, you know, that's massively wasteful. And so we, we have to figure out a way to to solve the content moderation cost problem. So there, there are real issues that we need real t- tire kicking, but they are issues that you can have engineers and product developers think about and Build on, and maybe we get somewhere. So this is the area I'm most excited about. Even though part of my role is to be a little bit of a, an issue spotter, saying, "Hey, wait, you have to solve this and this and this."
1: I guess the the you know the question specifically on the the engineering challenge, you know, search and retrieval, and um, all the issues around. I just thinking about parsing through video content and images and uh, all the things that are that are hard even still for the big platforms on some level, you know, when when you if you were to kind of carve that up, um, it's interesting to think about what I mean, but it's not undoable, I suppose, on some level to to imagine even that some of those functions could be commonly invested in or or held um, and applied simply in different ways. I I don't know. It could work.
2: It could work. I mean, there's the models that we have for this so far, things like the CT database, the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism, which is a shared repository of hashes or fingerprints of particular images and videos um, that were uh, identified as terrorist content, Th- those models have some real issues. <laughs> you know, they have great failures of transparency so far. Nobody knows what's being blocked or why. Nobody knows what rate of errors there might be or what you know patterns of bias or disparate impact there might be. And as uh, Evelyn Dueck has written about in her great content cartels piece, you know there are real concerns about um, coordinating bodies effectively being a vector for the influence of the biggest platforms to spread to everybody else and you know, create a speech monoculture, you know, re- reinforce errors. There's also real concern about government's role in shaping um, what these centralized content moderation bodies do. There are a whole set of issues to solve for. But again, maybe it's more possible to solve for those than to overcome some of these real barriers coming from the First Amendment or from... The, I don't want to point the finger and be like, wow, U.S. courts, you've made this hard. Uh, there's a reason <laughs> that this First Amendment precedent exists. It's protecting really important values. So, uh, you know, I, I am interested in these other directions that don't run into that set of legal and value-based barriers.
1: I'm interested as well in, in whether this, um, this type of approach, you know, exposing the content moderation layer or the ability for outside organizations to somehow either technically or at some policy level influence content moderation in practice or in policy, whether that might open up the opportunity for other civil society groups, you know, that have been trying to confront disinformation or deal with various scourges of harassment or uh, problems on the internet to play a more substantial role. You know, I'm thinking about groups like uh, the Disinfo Defense League. You know, is there some way to kind of join them with this Type of activity. I don't know.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's the whole beauty of this model is, you know, if there were a way that I, as a Twitter user, could say, well, I want to subscribe to an additional block list or an additional set of ranking rules that came from those organizations. That would be great or like to sign my mom up for those or help my crazy uncle install those. And then maybe those organizations, if, if we think or they think or I think they're doing a better job than Twitter does um, of identifying what is disinformation. If, you know, they're acting faster than Twitter does or they're coming up with labels that are more useful or more accurate. You know, I just check a button and suddenly I'm getting those labels or my mom is getting those labels. The model is very much a way of taking expertise that platforms themselves aren't factoring in and having the user say, well, I want to factor that in.
1: I'm going to ask, a, uh, This is not, I'm not going to formulate this question well, but the thing that's in my mind is whether the fact that you know your mind, other people's minds on some level are moving in this direction, which is really about in, on, in some way taking apart the social platforms or, or taking apart part of the social platforms you know and you've just mentioned of course this kind of friction that's occurring around the world because you know other cultures other legal structures are kind of encountering the first amendment driven priorities of the the platforms that we've built here in the United States is this all kind of going in the direction of we need more local we need more kind of country by country policies or or moderation i don't know if i'm quite asking this question the right way but, Basically, I'm kind of getting at, is Mark Zuckerberg's global community a bad idea and we need to figure this out at a smaller scale?
2: I think there are kind of two, two pieces in there and, I, and I, I want to speak to one of them and then come back to the, the second. So on, on the question of taking platforms apart under this model, I, I think that's a very useful way of looking at it and some of the most important work and and writing has been done by Mike Masnick, who writes about what he calls protocols, not platforms, uh, and Cory Doctorow, who talks about adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility. And both of those really are about taking the things that platforms do now and saying, they're doing a whole lot of different things at once, and some of them we wish someone else would do. So let's restructure, you know, where competitors can come in and offer a competing version of just one of the things, you know, just the content moderation or just the ranking, uh, while leaving the platforms offering a hosting service, you know, whatever. And and so I, I think as a kind of technologically driven approach to this set of problems, I, I would really recommend Masnik and Dr. Rose writing on this. On the jurisdiction point, I actually I, I I really agree with you that part of what we need is to scale down the size of the communities that we're trying to cultivate on social media, but I'm not sure that scaling it down to the size of nations is necessarily the, the most useful thing. I mean, we we already have nations for the most part. Able to say to Facebook, hey, this is illegal here. And Facebook will remove that content for users in that country. So, that, you know, it's not a perfect system, but like there is a legal, conceptual, and technical mechanism for countries to enforce their laws. But then separately, there's the question of like, what is the tolerance for nudity in Sweden versus India? And that somewhat tracks location and nationality, but there are going to be people in Sweden who don't want to see that much nudity and people in India who do, you know, want to have a higher tolerance for that than than their neighbors do. And unless it's a matter of violating local law, there's no particular reason to force those people into the social norms of whoever happens to be their, their neighbor. So, I, I think a lot of the beauty of giving users more control over the content that they see is that people can sort of aggregate into the online community instead of rules that's right for them, whether or not that tracks the, their geography.
1: Um, I've kind of pushed you in this direction to talk about this topic a little bit, but I guess I'll ask one last question about it before we um, we wrap up, which is why in the world would Facebook or Twitter? I mean, you you mentioned that Twitter is kind of trying this on its on its own, you know, giving a go with blue sky, but what what in the world could possibly be its motivation commercially it seems like it's giving up huge amounts of control like i can't imagine mark zuckerberg ever giving up control over the content moderation layer or the uh, ampl- algorithmic layer of of what he's built
2: it's a good question and i'm not sure i have the answer so this this really is speculation one answer is that all the platforms want to make someone else be the decider for difficult content moderation questions. And Facebook did that in a very proprietary way by building their own oversight board and then pitching it to the world as maybe this should be everybody else's oversight board too. But you know, f- Facebook would rather have somebody else on the hook for making these really difficult fraught judgment calls Twitter also would like to have somebody else on the hook for making difficult fraught judgment calls but the solution that they came up with is you know radical decentralization while the solution Facebook came up with is radical centralization <laughs> you know Facebook built a, a world court for speech and Twitter is looking at building a way to decentralize at things and have a whole bunch of different rule sets and and let people opt into them that gets them out of having to make these impossible decisions that will make half the world mad at them, um, or having to build up a massive content moderation team when they can't afford to do it. You know They just do not have the resources of a YouTube or a Facebook to hire tens of thousands of content moderators around the world. And so, having an approach to this problem that isn't about throwing money at it and, and centralization and control makes more sense for a Twitter.
1: Daphne Keller, thank you very much for
2: joining me. Thank you so much for having me.
1: this podcast? Consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Ten days ago, the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee announced five proposed bills to quote restore competition to digital marketplaces and rein in the largest tech platforms. Introduced with bipartisan support, the bills try to address the fact that unregulated tech monopolies have too much power over our economy. Hal Singer is an expert in antitrust, consumer protection, and regulation. He has researched, published, and testified on competition-related issues, providing expert economic and policy advice to regulatory agencies in the United States and Canada, as well as before congressional committees. He's a senior fellow at the George Washington Institute of Public Policy and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, where he teaches advanced pricing to MBA candidates. I asked Hal to take me on a tour of the five new bills in the house, and the response to them so far. Here's Hal. Uh,
0: I'm Hal Singer, and I'm managing director at Econ One.
1: Just last week, the House put out five bills uh, that all focus on various questions to do uh, with antitrust um, and and monopoly. And these are the sort of much-awaited result of the House's investigation into the big tech platforms and into. Uh, problems around uh, antitrust enforcement in the United States. And I'm very glad that you're here with us. We're going to go through these kind of one by one and hope to come out with a little bit of a better understanding of what the specifics are, but maybe also what some of the conflicts or hangups might be around around these bills. First off, what do you make of this moment and this approach, this kind of almost shotgun method of pushing out these these multiple bits of legislation at the same time?
0: Well, I think the committee is reacting to the political wins. And I think the political wins uh, are saying pretty clearly that antitrust has failed uh, in a certain sense. Uh, antitrust has failed to stop uh, the accumulation and concentration of massive amounts of power that may have not been seen for generations. You know, and um, what, what I think Congress is doing now is they're coming in and they want to kind of fill in the gaps. It's as clear as an unmuddled lake As clear as an azure sky of deepest summer, as an unmodded lake, I think, is that line from a Clark of Orange, that that now would require uh, a certain amount of uh, protection from something outside of antitrust.
1: So we've got five uh, bills to go through, and maybe we'll just uh, start uh, right at the top. Uh, There's the the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, uh, the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act, the Augmenting Compatibility and Competition by Enabling Service Switching Act, and the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act. Which that last one sounds deadly boring. So if we if we uh, you know don't get to it, perhaps uh, the listener will be pleased to hear that. Um, but let's just go through them one by one. Uh, let's start off: American Choice and Innovation Online Act. What is what is this for?
0: So yeah, that's a mouthful, and you know some of the titles of. Uh, come under scrutiny, but for not, for not instilling a bunch of enthusiasm among the populace, but that's okay. You know, the, the shorthanded way to think of this one is as a non-discrimination bill. So, so I, I mentioned before at the top, you know, these gaps in antitrust, it's become pretty clear, you know, I've been saying this for years that you really can't use antitrust to go after discrimination by a vertically integrated platform that's happening inside of the firm, inside of the firm's boundaries and so what uh but, but people recognize nevertheless that if you just allow this to go uh, unchecked uh, the monopolists can really the platforms can really leverage their power into all of these adjacent markets you know amazon moving into merchandise or google moving into say local search so what this what this bill is aimed to do is to stop that sort of behavior that that what, what's called self-preferencing which i think is a good word because it, it connotes the idea that you're giving preference to your own wares it's meant to stop self-preferencing in a way that just antitrust cannot get at.
1: And so give me an example of what that self-preferencing is. I mean, I, I, I remember from you know, various testimonies, for instance, uh, a, lot of, a lot of conversation about Google and Maps, for instance.
0: Yeah, I like to use the, the Google uh, and, and local search. So you, you may recall that Yelp has made a big stink about the fact that, that Google has cloned a bunch of its content and then, and then steers users uh, to the cloned properties, and Yelp even commissioned a study. You might remember this by Tim Tim Wu and a, a professor at Harvard that found that Google was willing to sacrifice quality even so so as to capture the search result and to keep that all that all that activity inside the home, inside their family. Uh, so the question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? And, and Congress decided finally to to write a bill that says you can't do that. Now it's not it's not a blanket ban. There are some limitations. I think there is a, a limiting principle that we. Permit some amount of the self-preferencing, but but the the gist or the spirit of the bill is try to stomp out you know, the anti-competitive self-preferencing.
1: What's been the reaction to this one so far? What have you heard from other folks who have have reviewed it, both in the industry and and from critics of industry?
0: Well, you know the critics, of course, are the loudest, and I'm I'm watching you know the the, uh, the platforms, consultants, and economists and lawyers like taking to Twitter and crying bloody murder uh well we don't need to mention any names here but i think that the tactic they're using to take down this bill and we'll also talk about uh, the the tactic they're using to take down the bill that goes after just integration generally vertical integration generally is to try to fix on fixate on some hypothetical that seems so innocuous to, to, to the common man that you can't believe that this would this sort of preferencing would be would be blown out or or prohibited by the by the bill, right? So they like this one. They like to focus on things like preloading apps. So Apple preloading, you know, FaceTime on its homepage. So like this wouldn't even be tolerated, uh, you know, under the bill. And like who 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 would ever agree with such a thing? These people are obviously insane, right? And so you know, if you go into the language of the bill, you actually find out that that sort of of preferencing. Would likely be tolerated, right? And and you know, there's two things that these guys are missing. You know, if I could if I can kind of dive in, if that's okay. I mean, the first is that there's going to be discretion by the agencies as to what what sort of self-preferencing to go after. So if you go after a, a type of self-preferencing that looks innocuous on its face, you know, and you, you take it in front of a judge, some neutral fact finder, the judge is not going to like your case, right? And no one wants to bring a dog of a case. You know, even with respect to private litigants, uh, in this bill, uh, the American Choice Innovation Online Act, there is a private right of action, which means that uh, someone who's a victim of discrimination, say Yelp in my example before, could actually bring their own case. You know, bringing a case to a federal court is expensive. You got to hire, you know, fancy economists and the like. And so we we shouldn't expect that the dogs of the cases are going to be are going to be broad. Instead, they're going to go after the cases that are that are meritorious that kind of tug at the heartstrings um so the second thing that I, w- I would point out is that the bill allows for what are called affirmative defenses and what that means is that this you shouldn't think of this as a per se violation like under the antitrust laws we'll treat like price fixing as per se we don't want to hear any efficiency justifications right if you're caught in, in cheating on, on prices with a rival say sharing pricing information with a rival we, we will hear no efficiencies right but here in contrast The bill explicitly allows for certain affirmative defenses that would permit a platform to get away with a certain amount of self-preferencing. So again, if something makes a lot of sense, like putting FaceTime or some music store, Apple's music store on the homepage, as opposed to nothing, right? The phone can't come with nothing on the homepage, right? So that wouldn't be very consumer friendly. So I think that that these people, the, the naysayers, the detractors, they're intentionally picking these cases that would never be challenged. Cases of self-preferencing that would never be challenged by any by any uh, agency in their in their right mind as a as an as an effort to kind of delegitimize the bill. And let's see, it might work.
1: Are there other types of defenses that that companies could make in this self-preferencing uh, you know lane? Could they uh, are there things related to privacy or yes or, yes or data. No, it,
0: yeah, and, and by memory, the bill actually makes explicit these sorts of defenses. Uh, if you can if you can justify the preferencing through some privacy concerns uh, or security concerns, that would be a, an efficiency. It doesn't mean you win the day, but at least the, the fact finder would have to do a weighing or balancing of the anti-competitive effects with the pro-competitive effects. But importantly, and this is missed by, by a lot of the people who are kind of uh, taking to Twitter to beat up on this bill, the plaintiff, whether it's the agency or a private litigant, but have to persuade the fact finder that this sort of preferencing this sort of self-preferencing is the type that is going to harm the competitive process. This is the language right from the bill, harm the competitive process, right? So so there's a limiting principle that hopefully is going to allow these fact finders to figure out and suss out, you know, what's the good sort of self-preferencing that we should let go and what's the the nefarious or evil sort of self-preferencing that we should stop.
1: Let's go to the next one then real quick. Let's go to ending the Platform Monopol- Monopolies Act, ending Platform Monopolies Act, um, which is this is the structural separation bill. Uh, what's this one do?
0: Yeah, so this one kind of takes a different approach, right, from, from the last, and I'm going to try to convince you that they are complementary, but in one sense, they're substitutes in this way. The, the last one that we just talked about, the, the ban on or the attack on uh, self-preferencing, right, That tolerates vertical integration. So that, that allows Apple, say, to have a toe in the music space. It just says, you can have a toe, but, but if you try to leverage your platform power right into this ancillary market, we're gonna stop you. This bill, the, the, what, you know, the structural separations bill or the separations bill, ending platform monopolies act, takes a different tack It says, you just can't have a toe, right, in the vertical space. But importantly, not, not all vertical spaces, right? Again, there is some limiting principle here. Not all vertical integration would be banned uh, under this rule. And again, if you go look at, the, at what the naysayers are saying, you know, again, no names, but I saw someone write a blog that said like, this, this, this ban on vertical integration would prevent you know, an operating system, for example, from offering, you know, this TP you probably know the acronym TCP IP, sorry. Yeah. Like certain kind of basic functionality of the internet. And, and of course, that's not the kind of integration that gets uh, regulators or agencies uh, up at night. Right. And so they know they would never pursue such a case. And what those criticisms again are, are kind of by, by seizing on this innocuous form of conduct here, innocuous integration, no regulator is ever going to go after the, you know, the, the, whether an iOS could include TCP IP in its, um, Right? In, its, in its fundamental design.
1: So what do you think that they could go after? What kinds of things, what kind of cases might you expect uh, will come along if, in fact, you know, this act becomes law?
0: Yeah, so, so I think they would focus their energy on the ones that you know, probably dominate the headlines, the ones that got, got written up in the uh, House majority reports, of, you know, top lists of, of most egregious uh, forms of, of integration. It, it's not just the integration itself, it's what comes after the integration right. Afterwards, and so there's this provision in the bill that that tries to limit uh, the types of cases to that sort of integration that gives rise to what it calls a quote conflict of interest end quote that that creates the incentive and ability I'm paraphrasing here uh, for the platform to want to disadvantage a rival, right? So what what kind of integration could that be? And and you know it's it's a uh, one that that I think has drawn a lot of attention is is Google's integration from marketplace into into private label merchandise. Right, it seems like that ground is, is is fodder for Google to do a lot of bad things. Here they 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 see that some merchant independent merchant is doing well on the platform. Then they clone the idea. Then they then they steer searches to the clone, uh, and then the clone basically you know is, is toast and and either has to exit or just kind of seed the market. To Amazon, uh, we also know that Amazon is using its platform power to, you know, to force uh, merchants to to buy things like fulfillment services or advertisements. You know, and if it doesn't, it can be, they can be buried in search. So, you know, this is this is Congress kind of representing a certain a you know, slice of the constituency that says we don't have a taste for Hal's, you know, case by case enforcement of good self referencing and bad self referencing. We just want to nip this thing at the bud. Don't even let Amazon have a toe in in the in the merchandise space, right? We just don't even want to wait for it to happen. We don't have faith, you know, that that regulators are going to be able to suss out, you know, good integration, bad integration. We just want to kind of knock out uh, the integration from the get go. That's what that's what I think this bill would, would would go after.
1: And how would you characterize the reaction to this bill so far uh, on the whole? I mean, it, you, you've mentioned that some of the critics, you know, um, maybe are lobbying kind of fringe cases against it or. Uh, taking it to maybe an illogical extreme what what do you think uh, folks are saying about this one
0: yeah this one is the is is getting the harshest criticism what what i'm seeing uh kind of in the in the twitter sphere and in social media and, and the like is a, a seeming tolerance for the non-discrimination bill because i think people recognize that there are some kind of blatantly harmful forms of self-referencing but but they're very worried uh, you know without naming names there's a law professor i know who's very worried about all sorts of things that Apple is is into, like integration of music, that that could be banned, you know, under this bill. And they're asking, you know, why would we just want to have a sweeping ban when when some in a, in a integration is innocuous and da- some can even be downright pro-competitive to the extent there's certain synergies, um, you know, on the Apple platform, say, especially you know across the hardware. So um, I feel like of the two, this one is really getting it. And, and what I think it's really going to come down to is can the bill drafters figure out a way to create a limiting principle that does apply, I want to tell you a little bit to, to certain acts in the bill, so that it, it can't be characterized or construed as something as being too kind of heavy handed, uh, you know, and therefore incapable of, of getting passage. I, I want to just note that the non-discrimination bill has a has a sponsor already in the Senate. Senator Klobuchar said that she's going to be drafting her own non-discrimination bill. In contrast, I don't think the structural separation bills has a sponsor yet. And to me, and it's very early, right? Because these bills have just been out a week. But if you see another week or so go by, and, and really no one's biting in the Senate, uh, th- that that's telling us something, right? Which is which is how are you going to get sixty votes? in favor of, of structural separation, it, it may not be there, in which case the non-discrimination bill is going to have to do most of the heavy lifting.
1: Next up is the platform Competition and Opportunity Act, or otherwise known as the, the sort of ban on on mergers. Um, what does this one what does this one say?
0: Yeah, so, so this one uh, is going to, you know I, the way that I put it kind of shorthand is uh, mergers by, by dominant platforms who meet a certain criteria. Uh, would be presumptively unlawful right it's not a, it's not a complete ban because it would allow the the dominant firm to try to justify its its acquisition you know if it if it can show that it say it doesn't compete with the target in any way there's a whole tick list of things that it might be able to do to get out of it so it's it's a it's not it's not a airtight ban but it's pretty close and you'll see it be characterized again on Twitter as being a, a complete ban and it's close but it, but it's not exactly that
1: you've kind of pointed me to a couple of different criticisms that are out there around this one um one's this idea of, of cloning and what does cloning mean in this context I mean, you've already used it to some extent in the google and yelp example but what what does cloning mean in this context and you know why is that a critique
0: so what cloning means here and, and what i was just talking about before on the self-preferencing is that the, the platforms are very good at reverse engineering a, a business idea, right? A lot of these ideas cannot be, cannot be protected uh, through intellectual property law. And so, you know, the, the, the buyer always has the option of copying or cloning or appropriating the content or the design, they just doing it themselves. I'm sure you, you saw, I think the Wall Street Journal did a bit of profile on, on how Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook would basically stalk these targets and say, you know, you, you have a certain amount of time to accept my offer and if you don't want this uh, what probably is a distressed purchase price um you know i'm just going to take it from you as a clone so that that's what we mean by by cloning and so you know there's a there's a piece i think in cnbc that uh hey no made its way around twitter yesterday and you know basically saying that if you if you take away the buyout option it's going to lead to cloning or more cloning and, you know, to that, I would submit that cloning is happening right now. I, I don't think that this bill, like removing the buyout option, is going to cause, you know, more cloning or cloning to, to appear for the first time. In fact, you know, as I mentioned, the, the cloning is all part of this kind of heavy-handed, almost thuggish strategy of the platforms to go around and try to get, you know, innovators and entrepreneurs to sell out, ideally from the platform's perspective, at prices below fair market value, right? If you don't sell it to me, I'm just going to take it and there's really nothing, nothing that you can do.
1: Why? Why are the sort of I guess the, the venture capitalists opposed to this one?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the venture capitalists. I heard. I saw a venture capitalists interviewed, and they said something that that seems smart taken out of context, which is, you know, why the ban? Why not just have uh, regulators kind of suss out, you know, the good acquisitions from the bad acquisitions? And I think that you know, if you could draw it up on a chalkboard, that's the way you'd like it to go. You, you wouldn't want to ban, right? You'd want to. You'd want to just you know, maybe tighten the rules around the sorts of deals that are that are getting through the problem is that you know regulators have had now hundreds of opportunities to stop um acquisitions by the big platforms and they've just been uh sleepy I don't know how a nicer way to put it but you know the last decade they have not challenged anything and you know one of two things is going on they might think that the case law just doesn't work in their favor and so they just don't want to waste their time or resources you know bringing a case that they can't stop or two, they legitimately got got turned or convinced by the platforms that these were innocuous or good uh, acquisitions. You know, Facebook taking out Instagram and WhatsApp. I mean, in hindsight, these were colossal regulatory mistakes. And I think with the the bill is saying, you know what, we, these guys had their chance. We went a decade like some of the most horrific acquisitions were allowed, anti competitive acquisitions were allowed to occur right under their noses. We don't want to leave it to these guys any longer. We're just going to take away their discretion to to tolerate uh, anti-competitive acquisitions, then, you know, and I don't want to suggest all of them, but a lot of the people who did uh, oversee this, uh, this parade, you know, went on to go work for the platforms themselves. So, so I, I see why we've reached the state where a lot of what I'll call the structuralists, there's a, there's another kind of fancy word for them, but the new Brandeisians, they basically, you know, they, 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 uh, they just kind of want to nip these things up front. They don't want to let them kind of fester or try to police them on the back end. I know where I understand. And I sympathize where they're at. They're like, screw it. Just, we're going to stop it. Right. And that's what they're doing with these bills.
1: This is one that Alex Kantrowitz, uh, wrote a piece in particular on his big technology blog. He said this one could really, uh, be the big tech bill that could backfire spectacularly. He's, he's most concerned about this one. What, what would you tell him if we had him on, on this podcast?
0: Yeah, I read his piece and thought it was a good piece. You know what he was worried about, it, and so there's this obvious. Well, we'll call it like a static concern, and then and then I think it ignores the dynamic concerns. I'm using these fancy economic terms, but in a static sense, you know, if you just take away a bid from a seller, uh, and it turns out to be the high bid, well, of course the seller is worse off, right? So if the if the if the tech platform was going to buy your your app, you know, for a million, then your next best offer was 750. You know, this bill has basically just made you two hundred fifty thousand dollars worse off. Well, I mean, congratulations, that, uh, right? That that certainly could happen. But the problem, of course, is that if that were the only concern, then then yeah, this would be a this would be a no brainer. It would be bad bad law. But there are anti competitive effects that you have to weigh against. You know, those those effects that, that I just mentioned. And I, I think you know before we even turn to the anti competitive, I just want to say that venture capital right now is super strong. Like, there's a lot of money swooshing around. And that author that you mentioned, in in fact, acknowledged this. So, so if the second best bid is really, really high, and maybe even higher than than the big uh, than the big text bid, right? Then removing the big text bid isn't going to do that much damage. Right to the seller if you're following me right uh, so gonna go back to my example i use you know 1 million 750 but if the 750 that other bidder is really at 999 and taking out the million dollar bid isn't going to make you much worse off okay so that's a, that's on one side but on the flip side you know you can't just you can't just fixate on the, on the harms of the potential sellers you also have to kind of think about the anti-competitive effects and like one thing that we're that regulators and academics in the space are really worried about is this notion that a big platform is going to buy kind of an up-and-comer and then either shut it down or you've probably heard of these called killer acquisitions they have in the pharmaceutical space or just kind of bend the acquisition the target in such a way as to like bring it into the board and and therefore not compete uh, against it the way that the way that it would have competed you know had say whatsapp or instagram been allowed to operate as independent I and mean, we have to we have to you know balance the, the benefits and the costs and I think that, you know, the final consideration is this like, what's the alternative, right? The alternative is that you're going to turn it over to some omniscient regulatory agency and they're going to be able to suss out good from bad, you know, and uh, if they've proven to be incompetent at that, either either on their own or, or because the laws are just hostile, then we're going to, then, you know, this might be kind of a second best approach to, uh, to regulating the space.
1: So we've got a couple more to get through and not that much more time. So let's, let's go on to the next one. The augmenting compatibility and competition by enabling service switching act. Uh, the mouthful there. Uh, but this is the data portability and interoperability uh, piece. What's this one all about?
0: Yeah, access for short, so that no one ever has to say that that long name again. But you know, the way, the way the kind of the background that I would give to understand this uh, bill uh, is that whereas, you know, the self-preferencing or the non-discrimination bill, as I like to put it basically tolerates the platforms the monopoly power and says okay we're just going to try to limit the platforms ability to extend the power into the ancillary markets right but this bill does and says it says we don't want to we don't want to tolerate forever you know that that there's one dominant social media platform or one dominant e-commerce we want to try to breathe life into a horizontal rival so that we don't we don't have to live for the rest of our lives at the mercy of these monopolists so the idea here is, you know, what is standing in the way of, say, a second, you know, social media uh, platform kind of getting up on its, on its legs and taking on Facebook? And the idea is that you have this uh, all this data, you know, data advantage uh, that's residing inside of Facebook. So the idea is that if Facebook could be compelled to kind of be nice and share its data and also um, operate, you know, in a way that, that uh, could, could allow, say, cross-platforming, say, messaging and the like, it might give these upstarts a certain leg up and breathe life into them. That That's the thrust of, of data portability and interoperability. I got to tell you that um, what I'm observing here on the Twitterverse is that uh, this one uh, goes down well. <laughs> it, it, it especially it goes down almost too well among the platforms and their lobbyists. It makes me almost worry that they figured out that that this thing is is so speculative. You know, the idea that that we're going to breathe life into a rival of Facebook by just requiring Facebook to play nice. Um, I, I think they, they wanted to show that they're behind something and they've kind of gotten behind this act. And so while I'm neither a fan nor a detractor, I'm just kind of, ugh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm indifferent to this one. I, w- I would love it to work and
1: um, you know, let's, let's give it a chance. Arguably, I guess this one was perhaps modeled a little on the, the telecommunications act of of 1996 that gave or mandated that phone numbers should be portable. Um, And so some of the critique that I've seen, uh, including from Gus Hurwitz on tech policy press is that, you know, social media really aren't like phone numbers. Your social media network graph, all the data, all the, you know, zillions of, of photos of your friends and family and dinners that you've had in exotic places is not the same thing, not, not the same kind of portable Right. Asset that a phone number would be—is that part of that? This that that's just simply this is just—I don't know—the the the wrong metaphor at work here.
0: No, I am with him. It's it, so it's going to be harder at the margin. I'll explain why, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. So let me let me try to defend what what Gus is like me saying because I think I've said it before. And I was a big fan of data portability in the telephone space. I, to me, the key difference is that when I called up Sprint and I said, you know, I'm moving over to. You know, Verizon, I want to take my line with me. It didn't require any coordination between me and my friends. Like my line traveled with me, my friends would dial my my old line, and voila, you know, the service would continue working. Here, the, the type of migration that needs to occur between, you know, a person on a social network and a startup. Uh, is going to be a lot more uh, involved, right? It's not just me walking away, but I've got to somehow take me and my friends with me. And that sort of coordination problem is going to be really hard. And I don't want to suggest that it can't happen because, you know, to be to be honest, I just don't know enough about the space. So, and I do think that, that, that it should be tried, but, but I, I am worried. I'm worried about it happening and, uh, you know, but let these guys, let these guys have a whack at it. And if I'm wrong and we get a, we get a rival to Facebook up in a few years, you know, I'll, uh, I'll print this tweet and I'll and I'll eat it live.
1: So let's look at the last one, which is uh, the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, the uh, MFFMA, if we were going to shorten that one, I suppose. Is this one something people should even take the time to read?
0: Uh, well, just know that it's not controversial. I really haven't seen any opposition. And I think everyone recognizes that the the agencies uh, need more funding. And so this, this would just kind of raise the, the price. And, you know, what? it makes sense that to the extent we can discourage, you know, economists think that prices, pricing things that we don't like, you know, is a good way to discourage it. So we can discourage a few kind of frivolous mergers by raising the price, you know, and then and then if it's anti-competitive and they end up end up having to pay more, no one's going to lose any sleep over that. So we like this is good for for lots of reasons.
1: That might be a good place to just pause and ask the question. You know, let's assume one, two, three, all of these bills get somehow through our deeply divided Congress. What, in fact, does this mean for the FTC or the DOJ? I mean, do they have the resources to think all this through? Will
0: there be? I think so. I think that, you know, with respect to, to say, the self-preferencing bill, the non-discrimination bill, the first one we talked about, this is really just bringing, bringing a certain amount of cases in, in, in a court. They either can bring the case into a federal court or bring it to the uh, FTC's ALJ. I don't think this requires a ton of a ton of manpower to you know to go out and identify a good compelling case of self-preferencing and and then and then to challenge it i, n- I don't think that would do a lot and then you know with this, i guess the same thing could be said with respect to challenging certain types of of vertical integration that they find to be kind of innately raising a conflict of inf- uh, of interest that you know I'm, I'm paraphrasing that that gives rise to to uh, the incentive and ability to disadvantage arrival that's kind of the limiting principle of, of that bill uh, the separations bill. I, I don't think it'd be that hard to find it to staff it up and to go after if they, if they want to. I think that of all the bills that that require a significant amount of resources it's going to be this access bill the interoperability bill because this one contemplates creating these special advisory committees that are uh, you know for, that are specific to each platform because right, interoperability might mean one thing for Amazon and another thing for Facebook and so I, I think that that one is going to require some resources uh, I don't know if it's such a, a big amount that they can't handle it but but of the of, of all the five that we talked about that's the biggest one but I, I think that w- we shouldn't allow resources you know to get in the way of, of the mission here i mean if, if they don't have the resources we need to give them more because this thing is absolutely critical if we don't if we don't stop this train or at least slow it down uh, we could really threaten, edge innovation uh, in a way that's going to harm competition and choices You know, for, for future periods for our, our kids and our grandkids.
1: It does seem like somehow the American public is, I guess, in line with, with your perspective. Um, there's a poll that came out today in Axios from Data for Progress, which suggests that there's a pretty strong majority of Americans that support breaking up the tech companies into smaller entities and uh, stronger regulation of the tech sector, you know, for the average person that's out there, I mean, what can they expect? Let's let's say they somehow, you know, get through Congress this year. What what can they expect? Well are we gonna start to see lawsuits brought and companies broken up in twenty twenty two? Or what's the time frame for antitrust actions?
0: Yeah. When when very soon well these wouldn't be antitrust actually this is just new new litigation right pursuant to these new laws outside of antitrust but yeah I think it could happen very soon one thing that I found out just talking to some of the staffers that for example you know there's this process by which the bills call for the agencies to designate a platform uh, as being a covered entity you know that is a dominant platform that's that's liable to, to these new provisions but I found out that a private litigant can sue and so long as they can establish the elements uh, that are in the bill for what constitutes a covered entity or covered platform then they can prove this to the fact finder they so so it's conceivable i don't want to get anyone's hopes up but you know that that the non-discrimination bill gets the sponsor in the senate by by senator klobuchar Gets 60 votes there and passes and it's conceivable that we'd have a lawsuit uh straight away you know we, i'm i would if i had to bet on which one that would come first probably yelp v google could be the first case litigated under this matter it could happen very quickly so you know and then what I always tell people is that the bigs, and I'm putting a quote like Yelp, obviously can afford you know a law firm and their experts to go. And what I think would happen is that if you get a few of these uh, self-preferencing cases uh, in the pipeline, you're gonna put the platforms on notice that if they continue to, to misbehave, they're gonna be sued. And and so and so maybe they'll temper their aggression towards the smalls. That is. You know the mom and pop merchant that's getting run off the road right now. They might be able to, and I, this is such a mean word, but free ride, and I mean that in the nicest sense, off of the litigation expenditures by the by the by the mids and the larger app providers and and content providers and merchants, um, you know, who are willing to kind of duke it out uh, with these with these players in a courtroom. And so let's see. I mean, something could we could we could shift the dynamic here, and we could actually get. Uh, you know a very different attitude by the platforms vis-a-vis independence
1: so you've testified uh in the house and you you've been uh you know kind of in conversations around uh the creation of you know one or more of these bills in the world that you imagine in the future you know assuming that that one or more of these these goes through and it sounds like you're more enthusiastic about one or more than than the others what do you hope the landscape looks like? What do you hope the ecosystem looks like in, in five years time or 10 years time? And why will, it, why will it matter to an individual out there in the world?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why it's been so hard to go after these currently under antitrust law because the harm is kind of like, a, if this were an environmental case, it's like a toxic waste that's going up into the atmosphere, but it can't really be smelled. So like when, when Amazon steals a, a, an idea from a, an independent and, and then steers searches to the clone. Right, they typically are going to sell the same merchandise, uh, arguably even better merchandise, at the same price or lower. And like from the consumer's perspective, in the short run, you're saying, "How am I harmed from this?" You know, it's really I feels terrible for the for the independent merchant, but I'm I'm no worse off, right? But but here's how you're you're being harmed is that if a bunch of independents are are watching the, the, this game as it being played out, where the playing field is so stacked against you that you either died because your idea was a loser or you die because it was too good and it got stolen by, by the platform right the next it round of innovators the next independents are going to say you know what this makes no sense why would we ever invest a new product or their new app you know they get stolen from us or a new merchandise or a new website why do we ever do this if this is how the game is going to unfold period after period after period and so the harm to the consumer—it's again—it's like a subtle one. It's this—you know—it's this gas that has no smell <laughs> as the room is filling up. But the, the consumer—it's it, our future selves. It's our sons and our daughters, and our granddaughters. If, if this is allowed to, to fester, you know, in future periods, there will be fewer um, innovations and fewer choices. You know, less competition as these ancillary markets or adjacent markets just entirely get monopolized by by the platforms. That's that's the that's the concern and how I try to explain this, you know, to the, to the person on the street.
1: Hal Singer, thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, it was a blast to have me on again sometime.
1: Will do. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests, and thank you for listening.
0: Tech Policy Press.